Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons today on the book of Ezra. And to that end, I invite you to turn with me to Ezra chapter 3 as we read the verses 8 through 13. And these verses also form the text for the sermon. Hear the word of God. Now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua the son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons, and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Henadad with their sons and their brethren the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. This ends the reading of the Holy Word of God. May he bless the reading and preaching of his word to our hearts. Dear friends, the church is not a building. It is people. It is people who profess faith in Jesus Christ and who are striving by his grace to live for him and for his glory. But a building is very important. Without a building, it makes it difficult for the church to function properly. It makes it difficult to come together for worship at stated times and to teach classes and to do all the other things that a church normally does. No one knew this more than the exiles who had returned from Babylon to the Promised Land. You may remember the Jews had been taken captive to Babylon some 20 years earlier. But then, under the direction of the Lord, Cyrus, king of Persia, allowed the Jews to return to the promised land and rebuild the temple. He even paid for some of the expenses out of his own treasury. And many heard his call to return, some 50,000 of them. They made the long journey from Babylon to the promised land a distance of some 900 miles through some difficult and dangerous terrain. And now they had returned. And they had been in the land for only a few months. 
And as we saw the last time, one of the first things they did was to converge on the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the altar of God in the place where it once stood. And there they offered sacrifices to the Lord, free will and burnt offerings, and they kept the Feast of Tabernacles. And now, some six months later, they begin to rebuild the temple. The temple was very important to them. It was a visible reminder of their relationship with God. God dwelt in his temple, and as long as there was a temple, God would be with them. What is more, the temple was the center of their worship. It was there in the temple that the sacrifices were offered as payment for their sins. It was there in the temple that the various feast days were observed. It was there in the temple that they gathered together for worship. It was there that they met with God and he with them. And the people understood this. And so shortly after settling in the land, they immediately undertook to restore the foundations of the temple. And this is described in the words of our text, and it's to these words that we turn our attention with the help of the Lord. My theme is the foundations of the temple restored. And we'll see that this took place, first of all, under godly leaders, secondly, with exuberant praise, and thirdly, despite nostalgic sorrow. Six months had passed since the people had celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. It is now, according to our text, the second month of the second year, or according to our calendar, April or May. Now, this was a very fitting time to start rebuilding the temple. First of all, it was the beginning of the dry season, and as such, conditions were ideal for construction. It was also highly symbolic. According to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2, it was in this same month that Solomon began work on the first temple. What is more, this was the time of the Passover, when many Jews would be present in Jerusalem. Now, as we learned the last time, substantial preparations for the reconstruction of the temple had already been made. According to verse 7, the people had hired masons and carpenters, and they had also contracted with the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa in exchange for food and drink and oil. Well, now at long last, they were ready to start building. Now, like the building of the altar, the work on the, the, work on the temple was initiated by Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak. You may remember that Zerubbabel was the political leader of the Jews and a descendant of King David. Jeshua, or Joshua, was the religious leader of the Jews and a descendant of Aaron, the high priest. And working alongside of them were their brethren, the text says, the priests and the Levites, as well as all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem. Now you'll notice something very interesting here. Both the priests and the people, both the clergy and the laity, worked alongside of each other in rebuilding the temple. This work was not simply subcontracted to various professionals, to the masons and the carpenters. They were certainly involved, but they didn't do all the work. The people themselves did some of the work too. Our text says all those who had come out of the captivity 
to Jerusalem were involved. That means young and old. It means rich and poor. It means skilled and unskilled. Some of the people perhaps were employed as cooks. Others did menial jobs like chopping wood and drawing water. And still others, perhaps especially the children and the elderly, did the cleaning up. It was very much a group effort. And we're reminded here, aren't we, that in building the church and the kingdom of God, everyone has a role. Everyone has something to contribute. Paul says the church is like a body. Some are hands, some are feet, some are eyes, and some are ears. But they all need each other. Not one part of the body can say it does not need another part. In order to function properly, all the parts of the body must work together for the same goal, for the upbuilding of the church and the kingdom of Christ. But you'll notice that all of this activity was to take place under godly leadership. We've already seen that overseeing the entire project were Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, and working alongside of them were the priests and the Levites. In fact, their names are mentioned in verse 9, Cadmiel with his sons, and the sons of Judah, the sons of Hanadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. But under them were the Levites twenty years of age and over. And together they oversaw the work, meaning they functioned as site supervisors, ensuring that the temple was constructed according to plan and in the right way, using the right materials and the right methods, just as they did during the days of Solomon. Now we learn here that the Lord wants his people to build his kingdom under the oversight of godly leaders. This is why the scriptures teach us that the church should have elders and deacons and a pastor. And as I mentioned the last time, the task of the office bearers is not to do the actual work of building the kingdom of God, but rather to equip and to oversee and to encourage those who are called to do this. Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 13, Paul writes that he himself, and he's talking here about the ascended and exalted Christ, that Christ gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For what purpose? He tells us, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So Christ gave office bearers in part for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And therefore we should pray for our leaders. We should support them. We should encourage them and obey them in all things lawful. Not because they're better than us, but because this is how God wants us to work in and for his kingdom. The foundations of the temple, therefore, were restored under godly leadership. But they were also restored with exuberant praise. And that brings us to our second point. The people worked very hard. They chiseled the stones and put them all in place, and at long last, the foundation of the temple was laid. The first stage was complete. And upon achieving this milestone, we read in our text that the people led by the priests worshipped God. Verse 10, it says there that the priests stood in their apparel, in other words, in their priestly garments, with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. So the priests and the Levites praised the Lord. 
And what is more, they sang. And they sang responsively. That means some priests sang one stanza or a line of a stanza, and, an, and others sang the next stanza or the next line in the stanza. And what did they say? Well, our text tells us. They praised and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures toward Israel. Now these words are taken from Psalm 100, verse 5. Significantly, in Jeremiah 33, verse 11, Jeremiah prophesied that this exact song would be sung with gladness after Jerusalem had been destroyed. Also, these were the same words that were sung at the dedication of Solomon's temple, as we read in 2 Chronicles 5, verse 13. In this song, the priests enjoined the congregation of the people of Israel to praise and to give thanks to the Lord. And two reasons are given. First of all, because he is good. And was that not true? How good the Lord had been to these people. And how good he still is to us today. He created them. He sustained them. He provided for them. He protected them during their long journey. And the people knew this. And so they sang, he is good. They also said, he is mercy endures forever. Now, the Hebrew word mercy is chesed. Sometimes it's translated as steadfast love. This is a love that is rooted in God's covenant faithfulness. In other words, it's not a love that comes and goes, but it's a love that is always there. It's always steadfast. What is more, it endures forever, they sang. And that means there's no end to this love. There's no end to this mercy. Nor is it dependent on anything in us. God is merciful because he is merciful. And did God not demonstrate that to his people many times? It was because of God's mercy that the people of Judah had not been utterly consumed. It was because of God's mercy that they were enabled to return to the promised land. It was because of God's mercy that they were able to restore the foundations of the temple. And the people understood this. And this is why they praised God for his mercy. Following this, we read that all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. The shout here was like a cry of victory when a battle is won or a cry of approval when a new king is crowned. It indicates that the worship that the people rendered on this occasion was not dull and spiritless and lifeless. These people were not simply going through the motions of worship. They were worshiping God with all of their heart. They worshipped him with feeling, with joy and exuberance and excitement. Oh, my friends, is that how you worship God? Does the word preached or a song sung in church ever grip your soul to the point that you just want to shout out and praise to God? Sadly, more often than not, when we gather together for worship, we're simply going through the motions. Nor is our heart always in it. And that should not be. If the Jews in our text shouted for joy, how much more should we, who have the completed revelation of God, and who, and who know who Christ is and what he has done for sinners, how much more should we shout for joy? And so the foundations of the temple were restored with exuberant praise. But they were also restored despite nostalgic weeping. 
And that brings us to our third and final point. Although there was great rejoicing when the foundation of the temple was laid, there was also great weeping. And we read in verse 12 these words, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. So there were people who were rejoicing, and there were people who were weeping. Why were they weeping? Well, some have suggested that they wept because they realized that it was their sin that resulted in the destruction of the temple in the first place. But it's more likely they wept because they remembered the splendor of the temple of Solomon. And they realized that this new temple would be nothing like it. We know that because in 1 Kings 7, verses 10 and 11, the foundation stones of Solomon's temple are described as costly and large, whereas nothing of the sort is said of these stones. What is more, this new temple would not house the Ark of the Covenant, which had been lost, or the Urim and the Thummim, which had also been lost or destroyed, presumably during the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And these older people, they realized this, and and knowing this, they began to weep. Now this weeping was sinful. And we know that because shortly after the foundation was laid, work on the temple came to a grinding halt, mainly because of the opposition of the surrounding nations. We'll talk about more of that next time, the Lord willing. But 16 or 17 years later, the Lord raised up the prophet Zechariah. And in Zechariah 4, verse 10, the Lord asked Zechariah, Who has despised the day of small things? And that's exactly what these men were doing by weeping. They were despising the day of small things. They were saying that since the new temple would not be anything as grand and glorious as the old temple, it was not worth rejoicing over, much less completing. But they were wrong. And the Lord rebuked them for it through his servant the prophet and he told them in a manner of speaking to get back to work he said something similar to the prophet Haggai Haggai was a contemporary of Zechariah and as such he too was aware of the negativity surrounding the construction of the second temple in Haggai 2 verses 1 to 5 we read that one day the Lord spoke to Haggai and said speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel the governor of Judah and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? And so the Lord here acknowledges that the new temple will be nothing like the first temple, but notice what he says next. He says, yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So God here encourages Zerubbabel and Joshua to continue the work that they had begun. And why? He tells us in verses 6 through 9, For thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. So the reason why they should continue to rebuild the temple is because one day, when the desire of all nations has come, he will fill this temple with glory. Who is this desire of all nations? Well, this is a reference, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hundreds of years after these events took place, he would enter into this very same temple, and he would teach the people the word of God, and in this way he would fill this temple with glory. And we can learn something from this. There's a tendency among some Christians, especially older Christians, to glorify the past. They're always talking about the good old days when it comes to the church, at least. The church today, they say, is nothing compared to what it used to be when they were children. They were the golden years, and it's all been downhill since then. Others go back even further. They read in the history books about times of revival, such as occurred in New England during the days of Jonathan Edwards, or in New York City in 1859, or in Wales and in Scotland during the early part of the 20th century. And they rightly long for and pray for a revival in our own day. The problem is, they long for it so much that they fail to see anything good in the present. My friends, this is wrong. We may not be living in a time of revival. In fact, quite the opposite is the case. But God is still working. He may not be working so much in the church where you attend, but he may be working in another church. He may not be working so much in the Western world, but he is working in China and Africa and other parts of the world which hitherto have been untouched by the message of the gospel. And it's important for us to be aware of this so that rather than always looking nostalgically at the past, we can rejoice in what God is doing in the present and what he still will do in the future. What is more, always looking to the past can be very discouraging for the younger generation. Notice in verses 12 and 13 that while many of the older men wept, many also shouted for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. So some, mainly the older men and the women, wept. Others, mainly the younger men and women, they shouted for joy. Why did they shout for joy? Because they had never seen the glory of the first temple. Either they were too young to remember it, or they were born in Babylon. And as such, they had nothing to compare it to. Nor did it matter to them. All that mattered to them was that the temple was being rebuilt in the present. And how discouraging it must have been to them, therefore, to hear the older men weeping must have made at least some of them feel that all their hard work was not worth the effort. But it was worth the effort, as God himself said through Haggai and Zechariah. Therefore, the older generation needs to be careful that their nostalgic longing for the past does not diminish the joy of the younger generation in the present. 
The Puritan commentator Matthew Henry writes this, and I quote, In the harmony of public joys, let us not be jarring strings. Let us rather learn to rejoice with those that do rejoice, and weep with those that weep, and ourselves to rejoice as though we rejoice not, and weep as though we wept not. Oh, my friends, is that true for you today? Let's examine our own hearts. Are we in our zeal for the glory of God discouraging the younger generations or encouraging them? Far better to remind ourselves of what God is doing in the present and to join with those who express exuberant joy than to always look with nostalgia to the past and weep. And so the foundations of the temple in Jerusalem were restored. Now what does this have to do with you and me? Well, let me ask you as I close, what about your foundation? What are you building your life on? What is the foundation of your life? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you building your hope for eternity on him? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ? If not, my friend, you're building on sand. And what happens when you build on sand? Well, the house that you're building will eventually collapse. But if your foundation is Christ, then you're building on a solid rock. And when you build on solid rock, your temple will never collapse. It will withstand the fiercest of gales. And so I ask you, are you building your temple on the rock that is Christ? And if you are, what kind of materials are you using? Paul writes, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying that it's one thing to have Christ as our foundation, but it's quite another what kind of materials we're using to build on this foundation. Some indeed build with gold, others with silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. These materials represent the works that we do in this life and what we do for the church and the kingdom of God. Those who do much, their works are like gold and silver and precious stones, but those who do little, their works are like wood and hay and straw. One day, and on the day of judgment, God says our works will be tried. They will be burned with fire, and those that are of good quality will endure, whereas those that are not will be burned up. Oh, my friend, what about your works? What about your building materials? Will they endure or will they be burned up? Oh, may God give us grace to be wise master builders of the church and the kingdom of God. Amen. We always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X, 
2M9. If you would like to listen to this message that you've just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this same program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. That's all one word, banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Thank you for listening, and now, until next week, may the Lord be with you all.